There's an interesting backstory that comes to us from Buddha Gosa, a monk scholar who was responsible for collecting a lot of the practices and teachings of the Buddha sometime after his death. And it's the story of what was going on when the Buddha originally gave the teachings on metta. So at the time of the Buddha, there was a large contingent of monks who met with the Buddha and he, of course, having clarity of vision, was able to identify to each one of them the exact practice that it would take for them to attain awakening, to become an enlightened being. And so he gave them each the particular practice that they were to do. And so then they went and went on a search for where they could practice, what place that would be uh, suitable for them to practice during their uh, rains retreat. And they searched around and they found this environment that seemed to be optimal. So it was the right temperature, it had um, good water, there were large trees around that could provide uh, shelter. And it was adjacent to a village where the people were evolved, if you want to put it that way, and were delighted at the thought of having the monks come and stay for a while and do these practices and uh, purifying their minds. And they were completely willing to help them and support them by offering food. And they were even willing to make them kutis, to construct their individual little meditation huts. So this seemed like an ideal setup in which to do the ideal practice that had just been given them by the ideal teacher, the fully awakened one. So it was looking good. And the, in uh, a way of describing uh, the cosmology of the time, there was a description of certain celestial beings called devas, which are invisible to human beings, but which are, uh, which can coexist in our space. And so these individual uh, devas, have the habit of abiding in trees. So I would say that large pine that's actually in the center court there by the administration building. I personally have had a few intuitions of uh, beings dwelling there. And the devas originally were delighted with the ideas of the monks being there also, but there, and so when the monks came and they started to practice, things were going well, their practice was opening, their practice was unfolding. But the presence of the monks required that the devas leave the treetops 
out of respect for the monks because they couldn't be higher, they couldn't seat themselves higher, if you will, than the monks, that would be disrespectful. So out of respect for the monks and what they were doing, they came down at the ground level. And at a certain point, it started to dawn on the devas that these guys weren't going to leave anytime soon. That they were going to be hanging around doing their meditations and the devas were in essence evicted from their home. So they decided that their generosity did not extend through the end of the lengthy retreat that was being planned by the monks. And so they decided they had to take some kind of action. They had to end this circumstance of the monks hanging around in the woods and all these goings on. And they started to make their presence (coughs) known or make a version of their presence known that actually was kind of freaky. So the story goes they would do things like they would, you know, create these strange lights and um, these shrieks and cries and sulfuric smells and things that went thunk in the night. And the monks got very unnerved by this and they you know they tried to stick it out for a while tried to work with it they probably did some noting tried to find a wise relationship to this but after a certain point it just made it impossible for them to practice and they were very very discouraged by this They were like, well, what are we going to do? So, okay, we better go back and see the Buddha. He was the one that gave us the practices and he, he, you know, he sort of confirmed to us that this was a good place, an ideal place, but we've got to go and we've got to tell him, you know, this isn't working for us. What can we do? Where should we go? You know, what's another place that would, would work? And they went to see him and he basically said, It is the right place for you. It is an ideal location for you. And even though the townspeople now want you to go too because they're freaked out (laughs) by the sulfuric smells and the thunks in the night and the weird lights and all the rest of it and they don't want to feed you, this can be turned around. Something else can happen here. He said, I've got a practice for you. I've got a practice that will drive fear out of your mind that will allow this environment to be comfortable for you again and will allow you to do your ideal practice in the ideal place just the way that we originally intended to do it. So this is, this is the teaching that the Buddha gave to the monks. So this is translated... Uh, by the Amravati Sangha from Pali, but this is the Metta Sutta. 
So he's addressing the monks. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense craving, is not born again into suffering. So that's it. That's the genesis of the practice of metta. And of course the monks went, they did this practice, safety and goodwill arose in their minds. The feeling of metta so pervaded the place that the devas decided they wanted the monks to stay. They wanted them to stay and do their practice there. And the townspeople also became supportive again and uh, the retreat continued as originally planned.
So everything that we do with our metta practice now comes from that original teaching that was given by the Buddha. So let's examine a little bit further the nature of this particular quality that has such uh, power and such importance in the Buddha's teachings. So you're all experienced practitioners here. You, you know some things. So I'm not going to go too far into some of, the, the, some of this, but I want to touch on some basic points, uh, especially for those who may not be so familiar. So when we're talking about this M- metta, M-E-T-T-A, we're talking about an attitude or emotion of goodwill, a kind of commitment to goodwill that can sustain particular kinds of thoughts, particular kinds of actions of body, speech, and mind. So other ways that you can describe this quality is friendliness or benevolence, uh, amity, fellowship, concord, altruism, It's a particular kind of quality of the heart that is not fault-finding or self-seeking. It's connecting. So an important thing, of course, is that metta is a natural quality that we have as human beings. We already have this developed within our hearts and minds to some level. It would be impossible for human beings to survive without being supported by others in our young and vulnerable years. You know, we're sheltered, we're protected, we're fed, we're cared for, we're educated by many, many people in the course of our lives. And however imperfect that may be, we have all been the recipients of a great deal of giving uh, and kindness by others or we wouldn't have made it. So as you saw in the, in the Metta Sutta itself, that this quality is often compared to the love that a healthy parent has towards their child. It's a simple and organic kind of quality of mind a kind of wholesome resource that we already have and that we can develop further. So when this quality is developed as it can be, it can actually become a kind of boundless care and concern that includes everyone equally without exception. And regardless of their relationship with it, So it's no longer reserved just to those we approve of or people who are in our own inner circle. But it's extended to include all beings. And this inclusive nature of this particular quality is part of what gives it its power. When we really develop this, it allows us to abide in a world of love that we ourselves have created. So when this quality is 
discussed as being one of the Brahma Viharas or divine abidings, that's part of what's being said, that we in essence have created a certain kind of sanctuary within our own mind where we can dwell in this state and in this attitude of mind. Metta is both a feature of the awakened mind and a key factor in awakening itself. Last, uh, earlier in the week, Sky gave a talk that touched on wise intention, which is the second step of the Eightfold Path. The first step, of course, is wise view, which is basically the, the Buddha laying out, again, the Four Noble Truths. But it's very significant that the second step on the Eightfold Path is this wise intention. So it's right up at the front. And wise intention is a a discussion of the direction the path takes, the direction the Eightfold Path takes. It's a way of telling us about what the attitudes of mind are called for in walking this path. And it tells us what attitudes of mind are strengthened in the path of practice. And wise intention is usually translated as meaning renunciation and non-harming. And the non-harming piece of this is usually translated as meaning metta and karuna, goodwill and compassion. And of course, metta is also one of the paramis, one of the perfections of mind that can be cultivated directly and which is a path factor, meaning it has something to do with whether the mind ultimately liberates itself. So it's both a path factor in the process of awakening and it's also how an awakened mind manifests. If you want to look at what an awakened mind looks like, you would look at the paramis, the perfections of heart and mind. So you can see it's an important mental factor. And in the Buddha's uh, teachings also, he is quite explicit about particular benefits that he says flow from metta. So they are as follows. You will sleep easily and presumably when you want to not you know falling asleep on them you will sleep easily you will wake easily you will have pleasant dreams people will love you devas and animals will love you devas will protect you External dangers will not harm you. Your face will be radiant. Your mind will be serene. You will die unconfused. And you'll be reborn in happy realms. Okay. So if if your mind can entertain the possibility of even half of those... You will probably allow that. That's a rather lovely package. 
So of course this quality of metta can be cultivated directly. And some of you here are actually doing this practice of direct metta cultivation. Some of you are doing metta as a primary practice. So this is the standalone version of metta practice. And most of you are probably familiar with how you do that. It basically involves uh, picking a being uh, that you wish to offer goodwill to, uh, envisioning that being or visualizing them or having a felt sense of them in some sort of way, and then uh, having connected to them in that way, offering what are called the metaphrases, which are basically certain kinds of thoughts that have the intention of goodwill. They're typically things like, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy in body and mind, may you live with ease of well-being. And in the traditional way of practicing this, you would start with uh, where it's easiest, in the traditional, traditional way of practicing this, the assumption would be the easiest place that you're going to start is with yourself. For us as Westerners, that's not necessarily true. But in any case, you would start where it's easiest. And then you would gradually add beings who have um, uh, various... Um, ranges of closeness to you. So you would start where it's easiest, yourself or a benefactor. Then you would usually go to someone called a dear friend. Then you would go to somebody who's what's called a neutral person, somebody that is neither particularly someone you object to nor particularly someone you feel close to. Then you would go to what's uh, often called these days a... uh, a difficult person in the more classic ways of talking about that it would be the enemy so the idea is you build the energy you build the capacity of mind through these uh, categories of progressive difficulty gradually opening up the mind's willingness and the heart's capacity to push out the boundaries of our goodwill and caring and finally let go of them altogether and allow all beings without exception to be there present in the the field of goodwill and our intentions for metta. So this is actually, when practiced in this way, a concentration practice meaning you're giving the mind one task or one kind of thing to attend to and asking to it to attend to it in a way that's fairly exclusive. Only uh, letting go of that practice temporarily if a strong hindrance arises and then attending to that hindrance long enough for it to clear and then returning to the, the generation of this intention of metta. So you can see, it moves the mind in the direction of concentration in a wholesome state. Concentration in one of the states specifically singled out in the Buddha's um, description of wise um, intention. 
And it's kind of amazing when you consider it that by directing your mind in a certain kind of way, you can gain both concentration and all the other benefits of metta practice. So however you look at this, you could call this self-directed neuroplasticity, or you could say you're choosing your own evolutionary direction, or you could say you're creating a beautiful inner world that you then inhabit it. Inhabit. But it's remarkable the power that this can actually have. And we know for our own direct experience, from our own direct experience, that it makes a very big difference whether this quality is present or not. Whether it's present in our minds, whether it's present in our lives, whether it's present in our relationships, present in our communities. It's a hu- there's a huge difference between this being present and this being absent. So the realization that we can actually generate this We can take the foundation that we already have of this natural supply and choose to increase it is very empowering. So that's one way that we can practice metta. But I actually want to spend most of this talk now talking about the relationship between metta and insight or vipassana practice, which is the primary practice that probably most of you are doing here. And I want to talk about why metta is necessary for the success of vipassana practice. So, as you know, when we first start our meditation practice, when we first start to learn how to do this, our experience is generally much different than what we hope for. Do you remember that? Or maybe you remember that from like the last sitting or something? Okay. So sometimes I, I think to myself, you know, with uh, the way mindfulness is being touted as a a kind of uh, universal uh, benefit and uh, with so much of it being taught within the context of stress reduction I sometimes think to myself when when people come with that introduction into immersion kinds of environments like they might find at the retreat center where there's you know silent practice in it you know, it's walking and sitting and walking and sitting, walking and sitting. I sometimes feel a twinge of uh, sympathy for people coming in. Because if, if you've learned uh, meditation practice through the lens of kind of light mindfulness that's intended to relieve your stress, and then you suddenly, you know, wind up on a 10-day retreat with a... <laughs> classical teacher <laughs> it's very shocking to the system I when I went on my very first uh, 10 day retreat I wound up there because I misread the brochure <laughs> I thought it said that there was going to be 
you know, an hour of sitting meditation and then 45 minutes of walking meditation. And I wanted to learn how, how to meditate. And when I actually got there and I found out that, yeah, it was an hour of walk, sitting and at 45 minutes of walking, but it started at 5 o'clock in the morning and it went to 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> it was like a repeating cycle. <laughs> It was very interesting to watch what the mind did with that, right? That was not exactly what it was looking for at the time. So, you know, often when we come in, if if we think this process is going to quickly generate, for instance, calm or peace or beautiful states, we're very often uh, quickly disillusioned either with the practice itself, with ourselves, with the, the teacher, with the environment, with all of that. And for many people, uh, especially in the early phases of practice, it can be hard enough to find the body and the uh, breath in a consistent way. You know, even just to like find the body. Find the body, find the breath. It can be hard, it can be challenging. So um, even though we are hoping this process of uh, attending to the present moment is going to be helpful and pleasant and stress-reducing, we often find that it's actually quite the opposite. Because it's really difficult to cultivate that kind of moment-to-moment, present-tense, mindful awareness. So then as part of this, of course, what we start to experience is that our lack, relative lack of control of what arises. And when we realize that we are, can't control what's going to arise, for most of us, this is not a happy discovery. So somewhere deep in our delusion, we have this idea in our body and mind system that we should be able to control what is happening. And when we experience the actual thing, which is different things are happening, different from what should be happening in our mind, we don't like that very much. So the Tibetan Buddhist refer to this process of meditation as gong, which means familiarization. So they say it's all about becoming familiar with the mind, learning, the mind learning to observe the mind from inside. The tricky part of this, of course, is a good part of what we actually observe or experience when we're learning to meditate, is our own dominant conditioning, especially that of the suffering variety. So if we don't learn how to open skillfully to our difficult states, our practice doesn't actually unfold. So unless we can find a way to wisely attend to these things that are happening that we really think are mistakes, or they shouldn't be happening, they're illegitimate in some kind of way, it tends to kind of go like this. The mind goes into fault-finding mode, which is another way of saying it becomes divided against its own experience. So, 
manifestations of this are things like um, the mind rejecting or holding on to certain things, right? Certain things like, I don't, that's wrong, I don't want that, that shouldn't be happening. Or the flip side of that is, this should be happening, something should be happening, something should be happening other than what's happening. The mind, when it's divided against its experience, is also criticizing what's known, or criticizing itself, or criticizing others. Teacher gave bad instructions, or the, you know, the room is too cold, or, you know, they should give us more protein, or whatever. Um, Eggs, (laughs) eggs, (laughs) some bacon would be nice too. Okay, judging, (laughs) judging things, objects, practice, condemning certain things. Oh, that's not, that's sleepiness, that's bad. Attacking certain things. That rest, that anxiety, got to get rid of that anxiety, got rid of, got to get rid of that. Fleeing things, I, I can't take it, I can't take the boredom, I've got to get away from the boredom. I need some more stimulation, what can I do? Maybe I'll think about what I did on my last vacation. Discarding certain experiences, seeing right, uh, right through them, right by them, not seeing the foreground experience. Self-critiquing, oh, I'm not doing this very well. Hmm, how do I stack up uh, with the other yogis in the meditation hall? Hmm, he looks really quiet. But she's worse than me, right? (laughs) I can tell, right? This is, so there's all kinds of struggle going on here, you know, editing and excising of things. And it's a high stake activity, right? The system becomes on guard because whatever is happening becomes... uh, some sort of evidence or some sort of proof of something. We're not seeing it simply is another way to say it. Certain things we want to keep out. On the other hand, we want certain things. We, and then the mind gets forcing and it gets kind of rigid. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make this happen right now. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to feel that breath and I am not going to let my mind get off that breath. I don't care what it takes. I am going to get that breath. I am going to hang on to that. So, you know, you can see the dualistic understanding here. You know, things are either good or they're bad. Like this thing that's happening now, this is either bad or it's good. How I'm doing, it's either bad or it's good. So you see the division and the separation in it and the contraction of the whole kind of way of being with things. So there's a reason on most retreats why one of the early talks that's given is usually, is, uh, usually a talk on the hindrances. So this really is intended, at least in part, to normalize their presence and to, to remind or clue in retreatants that they're not hopeless practitioners if these states arise, meaning these states of craving or sense desire, aversion, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, doubt, that these things are uh, part of the practice. They're not a mistake when they're happening. Right? They're not an error in the code of your experience. 
They are actually legitimate things that are present, that are there lawfully. So a lot of effort goes into trying to train retreatants, train yogis, in how to relate to the hindrances. So how to actually bring them into practice to recognize them as practice objects and treat them as worthy meditation objects. So given that these hindrances, these states, are usually not the preferred meditation object for most people who are on retreat, the question then arises, how is it possible to actually be willing to open skillfully to these states? How do you get to the willingness piece? So part of the, the way that's often instructed is by clarifying or reminding people what mindfulness or what sati actually is. Because there are ways that we can attend to things where, yeah, we're aware they're, they're happening. There's some knowing or some knowledge that they're happening. But the, the, that way of knowing or that awareness of them is actually not mindfulness. So one of the early uh, tasks in teaching people is to clarify that sati or that this quality of mindfulness actually has an open, non-hostile attitude towards what it experiences. So maybe the teacher will say, say to you in an interview, so what's wrong with that? <laughs> or they'll say something to you like, and you don't like that, right? Or you think that shouldn't be happening, or you think that's Ill- Ill- illegitimate, that experience, right? So we're trying to encourage an open, non-hostile attitude towards all experiences, including the hindrances. So if you uh, have been around for a while, you've noticed over the past several years, for instance, that there's been some uh, change in language in terms of how um, sati is often described in English. So I think this is partly the California influence. But you'll often hear it described now as something like caring attention or loving awareness. And these are ways of describing that are intended to to convey a kind of friendliness and attitude towards what's being experienced. And they're also suggesting that the body-mind system can be okay with whatever manifests, whatever arises, which is a basic kind of attitude of accepting things as is in meeting arising experiences, right? How they are is how they are in the immediate sense when they present themselves. How they are is how they are and that's just fine. It's not an error, it's not a mistake, it's not a flaw in your part, it's not a problem that you need to uh, get in there and make different in some sort of way. So there's a whole grounding effect that's present there when wise intention 
is operative. So consider for a moment the difference between a friendly and an unfriendly mind when doing practice. Which is to say a mind that has some basic goodwill present and one which doesn't. Say say you're sitting there and ill will arises in the mind as it has been known to do from time to time. Okay, so we know that ill will or aversion is the opposite of metta, is the opposite of this quality that we're talking about tonight. But if ill will is present and it's met with mindfulness, meaning it's wisely attended to, this state is not a problem. And why is it not a problem? Because the ill will is being met with the connectivity, the receptivity, and the non-judgmental nature of sati. So the practice is actually being protected in this way of relating to ill will, and the practice will continue to open. There may be lots of aversion, there may be lots of ill will. If the system can remember to just continue to relating it in the way that I've just described, non-judgmental, connecting, allowing, interested, non-violent, the practice will continue to open. That is, in a certain kind of way, a description of the process of purification. When hindrances arise and Instead of the mind being lost in them, sunk in them, or at war with them, it actually is attending to them through the mind of sati, with goodwill. Now, if if ill will arises and mindfulness is not present with the aversion, then you've got a hindrance functioning as a hindrance, and you've got dukkha. You've got suffering going on there. Practice is then off track. So how do you know when it's off track? Well, a big hint is that you are then suffering. So often if you are suffering, I would say almost always if there's a lot of suffering going on, there's probably something going on there that actually isn't being met with that kind of interested, open, allowing, attentive, non-judgmental, awareness, which is this uh, sati or mindfulness that has a kind of caring, loving uh, essence. So if this metta is present in the mind and it's established there as one of the mental factors, whether it's in the foreground or whether it's in the background, there's a lot of benefits. So if the, the metta is there and it's strong because it is a wholesome factor and the mind is concentrated with that factor, it will cl- close off the arising of hindrances. Right? So you're going to be less likely to have these difficult states actually arise in the mind to be met. That in turn supports the strengthening of sati or mindfulness and the unfolding of the the practice in greater depth. 
Because the mind is concentrated in a wholesome state, it means that other wholesome states are then more likely to arise. Just in the same way that the the hindrances tend to run together, you know, run as a pack, <laughs> the wholesome states often tend to run as a together as a pack too. One conditions the arising of, of another. An important piece too, uh, with, with the presence of some uh, meta infusion in the mind, is that there's often a sense of safety and ease in the mind. And that means that when difficult states arise, when challenging states arise, when things we would rather not face arise, the mind is more likely to actually be able to come to its own rescue, to generate some self-support in the form of renunciation and metta and karuna. So you've probably had this experience yourself. When there's been some metta, even when things are difficult, the system is more likely to respond with self-soothing, right? Or another way to say that is you don't have an autoimmune reaction to your own dukkha. Right? There's a difference between a system that goes, ooh, tough one, baby. <laughs> It'll be okay. And one that goes, why did you let this happen? This means this about you. You're hopeless. You'll never be able to do it. You're wasting time on the cushion. <laughs> right? You know, and that tone of the internal voice <clears throat> often tells you so much about what the mental state is. Is it really big difference in outcome if the system can find the voice that's more along the nature of, yeah, it's tough. You've been through tough things before. You can do it. You can meet it. It's all impermanent. Remember it was hard three days ago? Then it got better. It's hard now. It's impermanent. Right? So you see the wisdom arising there in the mind in addition to the metta. So with the, the safety and this internal self-support, then the mind will more easily open to whatever it's experiencing and won't feel like the need to pick and choose, to close out or to try to hold on. It'll be much less critical of what is happening and more able to focus on and allow how things actually are, how they're actually opening. It's a big change in practice when the system moves to just what's going on. What is it? Goes underneath that wave of is it okay? Is it right? Should it be better? Should I be doing it better? Into well, what is it? But you can see in that movement of mind into what is it? The connectivity of metta. The wanting to know what it is the being okay with it, whatever it actually is, the interest of mind there, the flexibility of mind, the not needing it to be a certain kind of way. 
So when the mind is, is functioning more in that kind of way, which it can learn to do, then the, the, there's an inner harmony, there's a kind of inclusivity within the system. So then there's connection with interest, regardless of what ha- what's happening. Goodwill towards the self and towards others and towards what's arising. More spontaneous self-support. A kind of acceptance of things. The energy that has been turned previously to warding things off or reforming things or getting certain things or holding certain things now goes into meeting with interest what's present regardless of what it is in a kind investigative way. Well, what is it? What is this that's showing itself now? There's less fix it, more accepting of things as they actually are. And with that friendliness, a kind of unthreatenedness, and overall a unification of the system of body and mind because it can actually hold things now that were formerly seen as being exclusive dualities, right? Everything can be in there, anything can be in there just the way that it is, it's all okay that it is that way. So this ultimately allows all phenomenon to emerge and be known as they are. And when it's okay for all phenomenon to be as they are and to be known, however they are, the mind starts to see their essential similarity, which is another way of saying the mind starts to be able to see and recognize the three characteristics their changeable nature, their impermanence, their instability or unreliability because of, (laughs) and the fact that they are not self and they are not controlled by a self. They are lawfully arising due to causes and conditions that are not under our immediate control. But how can the mind really see that? How can it come to understand that's true of everything? It's by laying the platform of understanding that they're all essentially similar by dropping our preferences and objections for certain things and being willing to extend the boundaries again, this idea of metta as a Uh, the extension of rings of willingness or rings of connection, extending it out, extending it out, extending it out, extending it out until ultimately it drops away altogether. And everything that's present is legitimate and known within the field of awareness. And it's all there. So you can see how this quality of metta 
this welcoming, expansive, allowing, connecting quality of mind actually fits into and plays a, a big part in Vipassana or insight practice. So if you were going to use metta or metta practice to help support your insight practice, there's a number of ways that you can do that. And you've probably heard these suggestions before. One is to do some period of metta practice at the beginning or at the end of your vipassana or insight sits. Or another suggestion would be to take a period during the practice day and do a metta sitting or do a metta walking period. So, you know, just to consider why you would want to do that. I've kind of given you the big picture of why you would want to do that by describing how it functions, it being metta functions within insight practice how it informs the practice and uh, makes it possible. But if you're going to put it in a nutshell, you'd say direct meta practice helps support concentration. Reason number one, it's a concentration practice. Reason number two, when the mind is drifting or discouraged or, uh, low energy, asking it to do something that's active, in particular, helps to arouse effort and energy. Because you can't just cruise away on meta practice, right? You need to be able to say the phrases, you have to remember who you're directing it to, right? You have to kind of be present to do it. It's not a drifty kind of off on, off on, off on thing. Doing meta practice also can create this sense of safety and can help counteract in particular the hindrance of aversion. It can help remind the system that it can support itself when things are difficult. And lastly, it helps remind the body-mind system of the skillful attitude to take towards practice, towards what arises in practice, and towards the self and others. So in other words, you would then be entering or leaving a practice period of insight practice, having regrounded or reoriented yourself to an understanding of what wise intention is and how it actually fits into this endeavor that you're undertaking. So if you look at the the end product or one of the end products of this activity that we're doing here with Vipassana practice, you would consider some of the well-known lines from a great Zen practitioner, which is, the great way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. 
And this particular quality of mind, of goodwill, this metta, when it's well-developed, when it's established in the mind, when it's the ground of intention and practice, is the, the kind of non-discriminatory, integrated willingness to touch everything which is actually present with the same attitude of mind, with the same kind of interest, which is the gateway into the state of non-preferring. The entryway into the great liberation. So that's something to consider tomorrow or later this evening in your practice, right? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.